If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the church of Ephesus and the church of Smyrna this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you desire for us to love you in return. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is, is present with us, lives inside of us. Father, would you lead us and guide us into your truth and, and speak to us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine if you received a letter from Jesus, a personal letter from Jesus. What maybe would it say? Where would the encouragement be? Would there be some words of correction, some promises that God would speak to you specifically? What if God emailed a letter to Rocky Mountain Calvary, to our church? What would he have to say to Rocky Mountain Calvary? Well, that's exactly what Jesus does in Revelations 2 and 3, is he writes a letter to seven different churches, seven churches in Asia Minor. The church of Ephesus is the loveless church. They have quite the resume, as we'll see, but they've left their first love. The church of Smyrna is the rich church. So we have the loveless church and the rich church, but rich not in physical riches, but riches in the things of God. Actually, the church of Smyrna was experiencing tremendous persecution and poverty, but they were rich in the things of God. So we get to look at the loveless church and the rich church this morning. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So the, the letter is directed to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And there's some discussion about, well, who exactly is the angel? Because the Greek word that's translated into the English word is messenger. So some believe that this is to the pastor. It's written to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And then others feel that God assigned a specific angel to each church. We do know from the end of chapter 1 that the seven stars are these seven angels, and those seven stars are in the right hand of Jesus. Ephesus, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, a seaport city right off of the Mediterranean Sea. It was large in population. It was filled with sexual sin. It's in ruins today. It's a fascinating place to walk through and you'll see in these ruins that there were signs directing the sailors uh, to homes of prostitutes. Also, there was a lot of pagan worship. It was the home to the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. Much like communities in America, sexual sin, economy, it was a place of great intellect. They had one of the largest libraries of the ancient world. And God had penetrated the city of Ephesus and birthed a church. We read a lot about it in the book of Acts. Paul spent several years in Ephesus, which was unique for his ministry. And this church also over the years had wonderful pastors. We know Timothy pastored there for a while. The apostle John pastored there for a while. And so this is who God is directing his first letter towards. Jesus is revealed in the churches who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. 
The seven golden lampstands are the churches. Chapter 1 told us that. On Wednesday night, we're going to be doing in-depth studies of the weekend text. So on Wednesday night, we're going to be looking at what is the purpose and the nature of the church. But for us this morning, it's important to know and understand that Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That we're to be a light unto the world and that Christ is in our midst. I think a lot of people are asking this question of, of why should I go to church? Why should it be important in my life? And, and first and foremost is because Jesus is in the midst of his church. He loves to get together with, with his people. And so when we gather together with his people, Christ is in our midst. Isn't it exciting to know that, that Christ is here with us this morning? He just hangs out in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and he's with us personally, but he promises his presence when believers gather, whether it's a setting like this or it's in your home. When we share the things of God with believers, the Lord is there in our midst. Here's the commendation, the encouragement that's given to the church of Ephesus. Each one of these letters follows a similar pattern where Jesus gives uh, an attribute of himself to the particular church. Then he gives encouragement, then a rebuke, followed up by a promise. Of the seven letters, five of the churches receive a correction, while two of the churches receive no correction. So here's the encouragement, here's the commendation. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That's an awesome resume. I don't know that you could really come up with a, a greater commendation. Their works were good. They, they served the Lord with good works, which the Lord calls us to. They labored in hard times, in toil, in strife, and in difficulty. They had patience. They had endurance. They didn't give up. They saw the end game in mind. They couldn't bear those things that were evil. They weren't compromising. They were making a stand against what was evil. Also, they tested those who claimed to be apostles and found them to be liars, found them to be false. They've labored in the name of Christ, and they have not become weary. This is what we would look at as being a healthy church. They're following the Lord. They're serving the Lord. They're, they're committed to truth. And God encourages them in, in those things. But here comes the correction in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. There's only one thing that Jesus has against this church and it's that they've left their first love. This word left, it's really clear that they abandoned their first love. It's not like when you misplace your keys or your phone or your wallet, which unfortunately I tend to do on a regular basis. And when I have misplaced my keys, it is a family emergency. And I needing the help of Amber and the kids. Have anybody seen my keys? Anybody seen my keys, right? And it's usually when I'm trying to get to work and I'm running behind and those type of things. That's not what they had done with their love for Christ. 
They had abandoned it. They had left it. There was that first love for the Lord. When Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus in the epistle of Ephesians, he commended them on their faith and their love for their saints, that there was a time in the church of Ephesus where their love for the Lord was alive and it was contagious. What's interesting about this is they left their first love is they were able to keep the exterior things in place. Isn't that interesting? They were able to keep good works in place. They were able to keep sound doctrine in place. They hated things that were evil. They were even able to spot false teachers and identify them. They were able to continue in endurance, but yet they lost their love. And God's really after our love, isn't he? He's after our hearts. He first loved us. We, we love him because he first loved us. He pursued us with his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God demonstrated his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he's initiating this passionate love relationship. And what he desires in return from us is our love. He tells us to, to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and, and strength. He wants it to be a loving relationship. Single or married, anyone's opinion of marriage would say, I want a faithful marriage. Don't you want a faithful marriage, those of you that are married? Those that you desire to be married at some point? Yeah, you want your spouse to be faithful. But what if there's no love inside of that marriage? And it's kind of like, yeah, there you are. You're over there. It's great to see you again. I'm, I'm faithful. I, I'm committed. I'm not out committing adultery. That, that's good. That, that's important. You're, you're keeping up the, the exterior structure of the marriage. But everyone desires for there to be love inside of the marriage, for there to be passion inside of the marriage. And the same with the Lord, so much more so with the Lord is, is he's not just wanting us to, to keep up the exterior of the relationship. He, he's not just wanting us to continue in faithfulness. Yes, that's important to the Lord. Don't, don't hear me wrong. Faithfulness isn't important, but it needs to be coupled with love. It needs to be coupled with that first love that we have for the Lord when, when God first got a hold of our attention. And so God is calling him back to that place of, of loving him. In verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. God gives specific instructions of what to do. If we find ourselves in this place where we go, my love for the Lord is not what it once was. I think I've left my, my first love. The first thing that God tells us to do is to remember. Remember. Think back of what it was like when you were in love with the Lord, when you were loving him, when you were passionately pursuing him. What did that look like in your life? What kind of things were, were you doing? What was important to you? Maybe it's a, it's a place where did God get a hold of your life? And begin to remember where you were at when God got a hold of your life. 
What was that first six months like of walking with the Lord? First two years like of walking with the Lord? And you're like, man, it was pretty rough. It was kind of bumpy and was a bit messy, but there was love for the Lord. There was, there was a passion for, for the Lord. So go back to those memories and to think, okay, this is what it was like when God had my attention. So we remember. Then we're called to repent. To repent is a 180. If I'm, if I'm headed this way, I need to do a U-turn. It's a change of mind and a change of direction. And God is saying to the church of Ephesus, you are doing something wrong here. And you need to change course. You can't continue on this course of keeping the exterior actions in place, but not loving me. Keep the faithfulness in place, but return to your first love. Come back to your first love. And thankfully, we have a God that welcomes back prodigals. <laughs> Where he says, hey, you can come back and love me. All I've really longed for, all I've really desired for is for your love, and you can come back to me. You can repent. And those times of refreshing come as we repent. Maybe it's beginning to happen already in your heart this morning where you're like, man, this is the exact message for me. And I need to repent. I need to change my mind. I need to change my direction. I need to get back to loving the Lord. It really all comes down to loving the Lord, doesn't it? That's really what this life is, is all about, is to love Jesus. If we've lost loving Jesus, we've lost everything. We've lost it all. It's all about this love relationship that he has with us and for us to respond and to be able to, to love him in return. So God's welcoming us back to that first love relationship and do the first works. It's a redo. It's remember, repent, and then redo. When God got a hold of your life and you got exposed to, to the love of God, what were some of those first works that, that you did? It probably wasn't complicated. It was probably fairly simple. And God says, I want you to go back to your first works. It's always fun to hear a couple's story, hear how they met, what it was like when they were dating, and then to encourage them, continue in those things. Continue in dating each other in, in the same way. It's fun for Amber and I to, to think back to when we first met and how we were pursuing each other and, and try to stay in those first works. And the same with the Lord. My journey with the Lord and the way that he got a hold of my life is I was born into a, a Christian family and my parents were both the first ones saved on both sides of their, their family, so Christ was everything to them. And whenever the doors of the church were open, we were there. I went to Christian school all the way from kindergarten through 12th grade, but I had an extremely hard heart towards the Lord. I heard all of the rules and regulations, but I missed the love of God. I missed that, that he loved me and was gracious towards me. And thankfully, my freshman year of high school, God got a hold of my life and really revealed his grace to me. And the first works for me were reading God's word. I woke up the next morning 
after God touching my heart, and I had the craziest thing happen, is I wanted to read the Bible. It's amazing what God's Spirit can do in your life. I was dead to the Scriptures. I was dead to the Word of God. It was just duty that was placed uh, upon me by family and school and, and by church, and it was never a love letter. It was never a I want to get to know this love. And I woke up and I was like, I want to get to know this love, this grace that, that God has for me. I started in the Gospel of Matthew. And at that time in my life, I was a terrible reader. I don't think I'd finished a book. I always found some way to shortcut a book report in school. And just reading the New Testament, and before you know it, I was, I was done with the New Testament. And I was like, man, I guess I should read the, the Old Testament. That's the first works for me. And then quickly after that, I had a heart to serve. God put on my heart kids in our church that were growing up just like me, that were in Christian families and going to church but didn't know Jesus. And I was like, I want to tell kids about Jesus. So the church let me serve with fourth and fifth graders on Wednesday nights. And there was like 40 to 70 fourth to fifth graders that would come on a Wednesday night at at our church. Wednesday nights were were packed at our church uh, growing up. And you know, some of the kids uh, would misbehave. Imagine that. This was a long time ago, Southern Oregon, a different time. So when kids were misbehaving, what we'd do is you, you'd take them out in the hall and have them do wall sits, you know, see how long they could do a wall sit. And then if some of the boys were really misbehaving, then they had to go run the hill behind the church, you know, and get some of that energy out. So, so I was basically like the Christian bouncer. That was my job. That's what I was doing is keeping these kids uh, in line, but, but I loved it. So when I, I think about my first works with the Lord, it really gets back to that. I know if I've, I've gone season without personally being in the Word, just reading it to get to know God on a, a greater level, I'm starting to depart from my love for the Lord. If I get my eyes off of serving and, and wanting to, to serve others, I'm starting to depart from my love for for the Lord. And what were your first works? For some of you, it was maybe telling people about Jesus. You just couldn't wait to go tell people about Jesus. For some of you, your first works was prayer. God really ignited you to to prayer. For some of you, it was worship. You just couldn't help but, but sing to the Lord. You did crazy stuff like sing in the shower. But it's been a long time since you have sang in, in the shower. So God says, I want you to go back and I want you to redo those first works. Please hear me out on this. God calling you back to your first love for some of you, it may be emotional. God may meet you in an experience where you feel all of these emotions to to pursue God once again. But for others of you, there will be no emotion. It's not going to be an emotional decision. You look at God's word and you look at your own heart and you go, man, I I know that I am not loving the Lord like I once did. I'm choosing to repent and I'm choosing to redo these first works. And I believe as you redo those first works in obedience over a period of time, the emotions will line up. Eventually the the emotions will, will come. But you're doing it out of that choice of obedience, not necessarily out of emotions. But go back to those first works. I often wonder in our relationship with God if we just overcomplicate it sometimes. 
we've added all of these things that we think that we have to do, and we've lost sight of those simple things of loving the Lord, those, those first works. Continuing in verse 5, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remove. This is really shocking to me that Jesus would write this because from our perspective, the church of Ephesus is extremely healthy. It's what we would long to see a church be. But Jesus says, if you don't get back to this love thing, I'm going to remove you from being a church. I'm going to remove you from being a lampstand. Jesus is not interested in a loveless church, even though they're faithful. The church of Ephesus may have sounded like this. Open your Bibles. And they were teaching through books of the Bible. They were committed to truth. They were good about knowing what they should stand against. There was a hatred for for evil. But there wasn't a, a love for Jesus. It's possible in a church like ours where we're keeping up with the exterior motions of a relationship with God, but we're not loving him passionately, but we feel secure in where we're at because we're committed to truth. I think that this probably really shocked the church of Ephesus. When they got this letter, they're like, what? This is causing me to be undone. God, I'm giving my whole entire life to you. I'm laboring in your name. I'm working hard. I'm committed to truth. I'm fighting these battles in culture. And Jesus is over here saying, yeah, but you lost sight of me. You stopped loving me. And is there great value in going through the word of God verse by verse and chapter by chapter? Yes, if we're seeing who God is and falling more in love with him. But if we're just getting smug as a church, then we've missed it. And we've missed what God would would have for us. God does have a way of closing down churches. Have you noticed that? He can easily say, all right, this church is done. I'm no longer pouring out my spirit through this church. It's not glorifying. It's not honoring to me. And that's his loving rebuke to the church of Ephesus. If you don't get back to this love, then I'm going to remove you as a church. In the community in Colorado Springs, what are we known for? individually and corporately as a as a church are we known for the love of jesus is that what we're known for or is it possible that we've left our first love and god's calling us back to that place to to love him in verse six but this you have that you hate the deeds of the nicolaitans which i also hate we don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were and what their deeds were. We we look a little bit into the word Nicolaitans, and Nikos means conquest, laity means people, people of, of the church. So it seems that they were having this place of dominion over people in the church, trying to overly control people in the church. But this is what 
stands out to me as I was studying the church of Ephesus is the church of Ephesus was really good at what they were to be against, and God compliments them for it. He, he doesn't rebuke them for it. God hates the Nicolaitans, the deeds, not the Nicolaitans personally, but the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And he says, it's good that you're opposing this, this evil, right? But they had lost sight of what they were to be for. And I think that that's what's in jeopardy for the church today. Not just our church, but the body of Christ in America is there are so many battles to, to be fought because there's so much evil in our day that we focus so much on what we're to be against that we lose sight of what we're to be for. And so, yeah, there's evil to be against, but what are we for? We're for Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're for the message of the cross and, and we love Jesus. And if our stance for evil is not coming out of this contagious love relationship with Jesus, then once again, we've, we've missed it. So verse 7, He who has ears, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. This is one of Jesus' favorite comments as well. Whoever has ears, let him hear. The point is, just because you have physical ears doesn't mean that you're spiritually hearing. And Jesus will speak this to, to each of the churches. In verse 7, it says that the Spirit is speaking. That the Spirit is giving a message, but the question is, are we listening? This is way too much information. I'm just going to give you that preface, but I have a great ability to produce way too much earwax. And sometimes it gets to the point where it actually hinders my hearing especially if I get water in there and it's all jumbled up. I've had several doctor's visits over the years where they're, they're like literally like digging in my ear and they come out what feels like a golf ball size of earwax. It's like, man, the world just got a lot more present in my, my ear after that. So several years back, Amber bought a home kit off of Amazon and now she cleans out my ears. Amazing wife, right? That she would... She would would do that uh, for me. But we may have spiritual earwax, right? It may be going into Charlie Brown mode. Wah, 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 wah. And we're tuning out what the Spirit would say. And when the Spirit speaks, it's so powerful. If we'll stop and, and we'll listen. And there's a promise that's given to the church of Ephesus. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. How do we overcome? 1 John 5, verse 5 says, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So as we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we overcome. As we continue to believe in, in Christ's death and resurrection, we overcome. And there's the promise of eternal life as we overcome. We look at the church of Smyrna in verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Smyrna is 35 miles north of Ephesus, is also a seaport community. It was a very wealthy community. Unlike Ephesus, Smyrna is still in existence today with about a population of 200,000. The attribute of Christ that's 
ascribed to this church is that Jesus is the first and he's the last. He's the dead and has come to life, which is very appropriate because they're experiencing persecution. He wants them to know that Christ is going to have the last word. I know your works, verse 9. God sees their, their works, their good works unto him. I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty, but you are rich. So they live in a wealthy community, but yet they're in poverty. That's because of the persecution that they were experiencing. And God knows their tribulation. He knows their poverty, but he knows that they're truly rich. Oh, to have the true riches of God. Oh, to have that relationship with Christ and joy and peace and be able to invest in the kingdom of God and the church of Smyrna possessed those things. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. He also knows those who are coming against the church of Smyrna. And there's Jews who are persecuting the church. The synagogue is actually the synagogue of Satan. This place that had once been set apart for the worship of God had now become a tool of the enemy. Here's the big takeaway, I believe, for the church of Smyrna in verse 10. Don't fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Have you found yourself more recently fearing the future and specifically fearing what we may suffer as, as believers. God specifically says, don't fear. Don't fear what you may suffer. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. He doesn't want fear to torment us. Perfect love casts out all fear. The church of Smyrna is facing certain persecution, but God says, I don't want you to be afraid. It may not be persecution that causes you to be afraid, but the uncertainty of our times or difficulty in your life personally and place our fears in God's hands. Oftentimes the psalmist would seek the Lord in the area of fear and God would deliver them from fear. I hate it when fear gets the best of me, when fear gets a hold of my heart, but I love it when God's love delivers me of fear and I'm in a place of, of trust and instead of a place of fear. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. The, the devil is attacking this church that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto the end and I will give you the crown of life. God allows this church to experience persecution, to experience an attack from the enemy. And there's times where the Lord does allow that, allow his church to be persecuted. Our hearts are going out to believers in Afghanistan right now, no doubt going through tremendous uh, persecution and we're praying, praying for them. But we also know that God allows that at different seasons for his purposes. What's interesting about the church of Smyrna is there's no word of correction that's given to them. So they're in a very difficult situation, circumstance, but they haven't left their first love. They're close to, to the Lord. And God oftentimes uses difficulty to keep us close to him. The promise for the church of Smyrna is be faithful unto the end, continue walking with the Lord, and I'll give you the crown of life, this victor's crown that God gives to them. That's the promise that God gives to the church of Smyrna. 
They're left with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church of Smyrna, keep hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, what's the second death? The first death is the physical death. The second death is the spiritual death. We'll study it at the end of Revelation, the great white throne judgment, eternally separated from God. The church of Smyrna will experience physical death, but then that will lead to eternal life and they won't be affected by the second death. So two applications and two takeaways for us this morning. And the first is, where am I at in love for the Lord? Where am I at with loving him? For some of you, as you examine that question, you go, you know, I I don't know that I've really ever devoted myself to loving the Lord. I'm a believer. I've trusted Christ for salvation. I know I'm the child of God. But when I really think about an exciting, contagious, love-filled relationship with Christ, I don't know that I've given him my love. I don't know that I've given him my affection. And you look at the list and you go, man, my affection has gone here, it's gone here, and sometimes to good things, sometimes to, to sinful things. But this morning, God's awakening you to say, I love you. I loved you first. Now love me in return. And choose to, to, love, to love the Lord. Others are in a place where you're like, you know, I have abandoned my first love. I've departed from my first love. There's been several times in my relationship with the Lord where God has very clearly spoke to me through this section of Scripture saying, Eric, you've left your first love. When I'm really honest before the Lord, I'm going, somehow, some way, I've left my first love. A few years ago, probably close to three years, two and a half years ago, I was on a plane with Amber to go to my hometown, to Southern Oregon, to go to a funeral of a friend who passed away from cancer. We went to high school together. He was a pastor in, in Southern Oregon. And I was reading through Genesis, reading about the life of, of Jacob. And Jacob had God appear to him for the first time in Bethel. He was running away from Ishmael. He just deceived his brother. Ishmael wants to kill him. Spends the night in Bethel. And he lays his head on a stone for his pillow. That's a rough night's sleep right there. Probably wouldn't sell too good to sell stones for pillows, right? But God was gracious and he revealed himself to Jacob in a vision. Now, many years later in Jacob's life, after Jacob's gone through this this path of really being a manipulator, God speaks to him and says, I want you to return to Bethel. And that was significant that God wanted him to go back to Bethel. God was calling him back to that moment when he first fell in love with the Lord. So here I'm on a plane, going back to my home church that I grew up at, and it's been years since I had been to Southern Oregon, been to my home church, Applegate Christian Fellowship. It was the first time Amber's ever been able to go to Applegate. I come into the parking lot for my friend's funeral, and it was very emotional for me to be 
back at the church property where God got a hold of my life. To sit in the, the sanctuary and have those memories of God speaking to me as a young man, as a, as a high school student. That's where I went to school ministry when I was 19 years old. And the message was clear from the Lord is, is Eric, you need to get back to loving me. You need to get back to this first love relationship that I had with you. Because when God first got a hold of my life, I didn't want to be a pastor. I wasn't reading the Bible to be a pastor. I wasn't serving in children's ministry to try to be a pastor. All I knew is that I was a knucklehead, a sinner that had a hard heart, didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Jesus wanted everything to do with me. And I was like, I want to know Jesus. I want to get in the word to know Jesus. I want to share Jesus with these kids because I knew I missed it as a kid growing up in, in the church. And sometimes in the midst of serving God faithfully, as odd as this may sound, we can lose sight of Jesus. You may be serving faithfully in ministry, serving faithfully in the church. No one would ever expect that you have left your first love. You wouldn't expect it. No one else would expect it. But Jesus is over here going, you know, you've gotten really busy with serving. You've gotten really busy with these stands against evil that are righteous, but you're not loving me. How about you come back? How about you come back to Bethel and get back to that first love? For some of you, as you pray through this, the Holy Spirit is confirming in your heart, man, you're loving the Lord. You're doing those first works. Stay in that place. Stay committed to, to loving Jesus. And then for others, it's what we touched on in Smyrna. It's fear. The fear is just building, and you've been feeling it build for, for a while. Well, what if this happens, and what if that happens, and what if I get sick, and what if there's more regulations that, that come down, and what's going to happen with my job, and I'm worried about this and worried about that, and, and the fear's building. And Jesus' word to you is, hey, don't worry. Don't fear. Don't fear about what you're going to suffer. I got it. It's okay. I reign. And trust me in that. So as we move into communion this morning, let's let the Lord speak to our hearts. Let's let the Lord confirm this message as we remember the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of, of Christ. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we pray that you would search us, that you would know us, that you would reveal our hearts to us, that you would show us where our love is. And if we've left our first love, that you would make that evident and call us back unto yourself. And Lord, where there's fear, that you would lift fear off of us. As we celebrate communion, we understand that you love us. And what do we have to be afraid of? You're for us. Your body was broken. Your blood was shed. You're going to be faithful until the end. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.